Hello and a very warm welcome to 20 Minutes With, a podcast brought to you by Proximo, a leading source of news and data for the global project finance, energy and infrastructure market. My name is Thomas Hopkins and I am Deputy Editor of Proximo. I am delighted to be joined today by Michael Crabb, a Senior Vice President at Last Energy. Michael is going to be discussing Last Energy's work in the small nuclear space with me, delving into the detail of the potential gaps in the market for this technology as part of the energy transition. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thomas, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. And um, just before we discuss, sort of start the discussion, um, perhaps I could ask you just to tell me a bit about your professional background. Sure. Um, so my undergrad is actually in engineering. Um, and uh, <clears throat> architectural engineering, which I, I studied all four years until I realized I didn't want to sit in front of AutoCAD all day. And I ended up um, working in a uh, energy private equity firm. Um, so, you know, combination of, of luck and, and grit and um, didn't know much about finance, didn't know much about energy, but got to work with a lot of really smart people looking at a lot of cool deals. Um, <clears throat> so we were a North American focused private power, private equity fund, um, as well as natural gas midstream. Uh, built a couple of portfolios uh, in those funds for the first five years of my career. We sold those. And I shifted over to corporate IPP, um, focusing again on mergers and acquisitions and a little bit more on strategy and operations. Uh, and then a little bit of development experience as well, mostly wind and solar. Um, <clears throat> so that's the next five years of my career. And I joined the team here at Last Energy uh, about two years ago, to help bring our uh, product, our technology uh, to market using those exact same uh, playbooks uh, that wind and solar and natural gas before them used to, to scale. Of course, and uh, thank you, Michael. And that actually leads me quite neatly into my first question because you were sort of starting to mention some of the work that Last Energy does. So could you tell me a little bit of, about the history of the company and some of the work that it does currently? Sure. Um, yeah, our, our origin really was focused on trying to answer the key question around how do we how do we decarbonize uh, yet also scale our energy consumption, right? Um, that the, the, the our ability as humans to use energy for for good has been key in lifting us out of poverty, and we still have I don't know four billion more people to go. Um, and so we started with a very first principles idea, looking at the different alternatives, and quickly found that the physics around nuclear energy just seemed almost too good to be true, right? Orders of magnitude more sustainable, less mineral use, less land use, um, a baseload product, no emissions. <clears throat> and so we spent a couple of years doing nothing but determining why nuclear energy itself hadn't, hadn't scaled the way the science suggested it should. Um, and and we eventually spun off a, a for-profit development arm uh, focused on a 20 megawatt pressurized water reactor heat source nuclear power plant um, designed to sell baseload power to industrial users. Um, and the key finding and the key reason we went that direction uh, is because we identified the problem for nuclear was really cost and schedule. Uh, you had these $10 billion projects that became $20 billion and just seemed to never end. And so uh, by scaling down the product, we are unlocking a new uh, offtake uh, environment, a new a new customer set uh, that has never had a comparable power source available to it. And do you tend to refer to these uh, sort of nuclear plants that you're developing as 
sort of small nuclear plants, modular nuclear plants is the <laughs> term that's uh, sort of preferable? <clears throat> oh, uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of debate on that side. We, we generally call it micronuclear. I, I per personally don't really like the SMR focus. Um, the reactor is just the heat source. Uh, you know, you, you don't go to a car dealership wanting to buy a piston. You go to a car dealership wanting to buy a car. So um, the reactor is just the means to an end for our for our customers. That makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I, I know it's a subject of some debate, so that's why I thought I'd ask. I'm, <laughs> but just looking at these sort of micronuclear plants that you know, uh, Last Energy is is developing. Uh, what role can they play as part of the energy generation mix? Yeah, I mean, basically any anything that needs electricity or uh, certain temperatures of heat, right? Um, at the end of the day, electricity is a commodity. Uh, and so we are generally supplying customers that have very few alternatives. Uh, so if you're a data center customer or a, a steel manufacturer or a vertical greenhouse, um, you need 24-7 baseload power. Uh, and um, even if you don't want to decarbonize or you don't want to be more sustainable, you may not have that uh, reliable power su supply today, um, or you may be restricted from growth. Um, so that's our that's our starting point, right? Uh, the the grand vision is to decarbonize globally, but you have to take the first step before you take the thousandth. Um, so that's the focus in the near term. I don't and, know if that answered your question. No, of course, no, it does. I was I just I, I, a follow up to that question really was um, just in terms of kind of the intermittency of, of renewables. Is this an area where kind of these sort of micronuclear plants could kind of actually complement? renewable energy if, they, if they're grid connected in the sense that, you know, if uh, solar or wind um, aren't able to sort of meet the kind of baseload requirements, as is the, the general sort of problem <laughs> that we're sort of scr scratching our heads about with renewable energy, is, is there a role for, for these sort of micronuclear plants there? Uh, yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily frame it that way. I mean, it's a little bit of news bias thinking that, uh, yes, intermittency is a problem, um, and yes, wind and solar have scaled on a year-over-year -year basis tremendously fast. There's still an incredibly small amount of the global energy use. Uh, in fact, we have not we we haven't even reversed the trend of increasing carbon emissions year over year. So uh, I kind of feel like this idea of wind, solar, or nuclear, or they're complementing each other. It's really focusing on, say, 10% of the pie. We need to focus on both decarbonizing 90% of the pie, as well as allowing ourselves to, to use more energy in the future. Um, so yes, I do think there is price volatility that are that's driving adoption of our units, uh, but, but I don't necessarily, you know, the markets aren't centrally controlled in the way that you describe. We're not saying, oh, we have volatility, we need a baseload supply source. Um, Really, individual customers have individual needs and individual use cases uh, where each one of these technologies will play its part. Of course, of course. And just thinking about these individual customers, I'm, I'm sort of aware that, you know, Last Energy does offer a kind of behind the meter um, sort of nuclear power source option for sort of, you know, larger off-takers, you know, sort of entities like industrial off-takers, or you mentioned data centers earlier. Um, I mean, what what are the potential advantages uh, in choosing a sort of behind the meter sort of nuclear power source for these, uh, you know, for these larger off takers? Yeah, I mean, a, a really strong value proposition are the are the transmission charges and so, in some cases environmental tariffs 
uh, that retail or commercial and industrial end users end up bearing, right? Um, so uh, sometimes price volatility and intermittency that we talked about, it may not show up in wholesale power prices. It may show up in high ancillary market prices. It may show up in higher transmission charges. Um, you, you get no benefit of that uh, selling into the wholesale market. You can participate maybe on the ancillary market side a little bit. Um, but when we're able to go directly via private wire to a customer, um, you know, depending on the market, it, it may cut out 50% of their electric bill. Uh, and so that creates a, a really strong value proposition for both of us, frankly, to um, for us to generate accretive returns for our project investors, as well as generate significant savings for the customer. And a bonus, right? It ties directly into their decarbonization footprint. It is the opposite of greenwashing. <laughs> Yes, of course. Yes. And uh, just actually thinking about some of the practicalities here is just a follow up. Um, when with this behind the meter product that you sort of um, offer, is this then sort of um, owned by the off taker, but operated by last energy? Or I, I'm just wondering how that kind of works, because we, you know, often think about a sort of traditional kind of, you know, a developer developing a power plant and you've got a you know a PPA that then you know supplies an offtaker but the developer very much owns that that uh, that power plant but uh, it, with behind the meter that might be might be different I imagine I, I just wondered how that kind of worked with with your offering there ah no great question um it's not different uh, so it is sort of that latter approach unlike maybe what you're thinking of as sort of solar you know rooftop solar for example right um, our model is more like that traditional developer model. And then the power purchase agreement for a private wire physical interconnection, um, or I guess connection, as you call them in Europe, uh, it just has some nuance to it that is unique and different from a virtual power purchase agreement, such as grid access rights, who maintains the substation, right? There's some additional balancing and scheduling that needs to be figured out between the parties. Uh, but but no, it is we would develop, own, operate the asset and and finance that um, on the back of the that power purchase agreement to the end user. Okay, okay, and that that would I, I imagine typically be a fairly long term power purchase agreement. Uh, generally, we have six year fueling cycles, so we generally have six year. Um, in intervals of six years is certainly our preference. Um, somewhere between twelve and twenty four years is is typical. Okay. Okay, thank you. That that makes a lot of sense. And um, just thinking about where you've got, you know, uh, grid connected sort of small nuclear plants rather than sort of supplying one particular um, sort of offtaker. Um, I mean, is is that kind of competition now or potentially in the future, if that isn't the case now, with sort of renewables projects that have an energy storage component? Because we've seen a lot of growth in kind of solar plus storage. And I wondered if that was... A competitor to or complementary to or uh, you know these sort of smaller nuclear um, plants that you're sort of developing yeah I think uh you know from a from a wholesale market perspective uh sure it's everything's a competitor right <laughs> the 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 benefit of a wholesale market is that it is the ultimate market competition um but from a product perspective Generally, the solar plus storage or, or maybe wind plus storage, uh, although less common, that's generally an economic arbitrage. It, it's not a true baseload product, right? So if you have a solar capacity factor that's 10, 20, 30 percent, you need 
an, an extensive amount of battery capacity to truly supply a base load demand. Generally, what I have seen is that you have maybe four hours of battery storage uh, and maybe only for 25% of the solar project's capacity. Um, and so all, all the economic incentives do, are doing there is incentivizing the developer and the, the owners of those assets to shift from the, the trough of the duck curve and try to capture some of that peak on the back end. But it's not truly a baseload product. So in that respect, for our customers, and we do have some financial PPAs, they generally want 24-7 time-matched carbon-free power. Uh, and so you don't really get that from, from solar and, and storage, at, at least the, the structures of those deals as I've seen them today. Of course. Thank you. And uh, just thinking about, you know, the permitting process, which is, you know, often um, sort of complicated across a whole range of different asset classes. But I mean, how receptive are most governments to the development of these smaller nuclear plants? And just sort of following on from that, is the permitting process quite complicated? You know, I'm aware with like large nuclear, you can talk sort of 10 to 15 years to get a project actually sort of, you know, developed and operational. Is it more straightforward for smaller uh, nuclear plants? Oh yeah, there's and there's so many axes to that or axes to that question. Um, maybe I'll start with the technical aspects of of development. Uh, if you think about what a nuclear power plant is, it's just a thermal power plant where instead of a boiler, you have a pressure vessel and fuel rods. Uh, so instead of burning or combustion uh, chemical energy in order to generate heat to heat water, uh, we're using atomic energy. We're creating the perfect circumstances and and a very refined fuel pellet. Uh, that gives off energy when when in a moderator of some kind, in this case, water. Uh, and so <clears throat> uh, to your point, large-scale facilities end up taking a long time, more because of their size than because of any other reason, right? So in Europe, there's environmental permitting and, and local permitting, and um, the construction crews for these facilities, you know, it's 10,000 people. Um, and so they have massive busing contracts, and you can think about the domino effect of everything that gets disrupted, the traffic planning, uh, the grid connection set up, the aux power for the construction process itself. It, it may be bigger than, than our plant's you know, 20 megawatt capacity. Um, and so there's tremendous amount of complexity in large-scale infrastructure projects generally, and historically, large nuclear has been some of the largest, right? 10 billion projects that become 20 or $30 billion. Um, and so on a technical front, the actual planning and permitting process for us is the same as any other thermal power plant because of our size. We're not doing anything extraordinary uh, when it comes to the plant and the product itself. Um, the one nuance is that we do have to go through each country's nuclear licensing regime. Uh, and so each country has a slightly different, um, a slightly different process. Some are more formulaic, others are a little more, you know, a little more loose. Um, and and so we've targeted countries in Europe that specifically are more supportive than others. Um, it doesn't doesn't take reading a lot of headlines to know that some countries are still very um, against nuclear generation, and and some are very supportive. Uh, and so we choose to go build in those that have more supportive environments. Yes, I mean that would seem that would definitely seem logical. <laughs> but um, and and just looking at kind of the the financing side, because I, I obviously that's kind of the, the other sort of piece of the puzzle here. Once you've got all the all the permits, um, I mean, how much appetite is there from from lenders to finance small nuclear plants? And um, 
as part of that process, are there any concerns that typically need to be sort of allayed when raising debt? Um, I, I, you know, we've found quite a bit of appetite. I actually think we may be able to get um, some debt financing for our for our first few deployments. Um, I would say the concerns are the same as any infrastructure project, right? We, you know, there's maybe five percent or ten percent of the market that that won't do nuclear, um, and it's generally not a philosophical thing. It's more of the uh, industry's poor track record of delivering on time and on budget. Um, but for the most part, it's the same concerns that investors are looking at for all technologies, right? Is there a strong enough EPC? Is there, um, has the technology been de-risked? Has the development been de-risked? Is the power purchase agreement with a creditworthy off-taker? Um, can I, you know, can I underwrite this project in my return hurdles? Do I feel confident that the management team can execute? Um, it, it's really the it, the heat source doesn't dictate what those underwriting assumptions are, right? It is it is a cash flow analysis that's dictated by the same underwriting criteria that investors use for all other technologies. Well, yes, I suppose just as you were pointing out that, you know, obviously with a smaller solution, you don't have quite the same logistical complexities of those larger nuclear plants. So perhaps that concern that, you know, that, that bit of the market that doesn't like nuclear because it's sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, some of the project's inability to deliver kind of on time, you know, you might have a very strong argument for that being different with smaller nuclear plants in that you're not dealing with the same level of size and therefore logistical complexity. De definitely. Um, <clears throat> definitely. And, and a key part of what drove us to really the smallest end of how people define small, right? Um, you know, I, I don't think a $3 billion project is all that small. Uh, and so, you know, we approximately $100 million on a per unit basis with the opportunity for follow on capital, right? Um, I don't need the whole market to participate in an auction process. I need five or 10 real bidders that are willing to do a little diligence and get comfortable with the normal underwriting assumptions that they need to get comfortable with. Of course. And um, Michael... I'm very sorry to say that's all we're going to have time for today, but thank you just once again for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great chatting with you. Yes, it's been very, very interesting. And just before we end, I would just like to take a brief moment just to remind our listeners about our Proximo US Power Renewables and Energy Transition Finance 2023 event, which is taking place in Austin from 2 to 3 November. Further details can be found on our website at proximoinfra.com. So do be sure to sign up. Thanks to everyone for listening and do join us again next month for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news and analysis from Proximo. <music>